All right. We are uh, looking at the book of Luke now. Uh, we did not finish Luke chapter 5 last week, so we're going to start there. So you can uh, turn to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 33. Glad you're here. And everybody brought a Bible, which is awesome. Got to get that Sunday morning crowd. Yes, ma'am, absolutely. All right, let's, uh, let's pick up reading verse 33 of chapter 5. It says, Now they said to him, The disciples of John fast often, and they offer prayers, and so do the disciples of, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them this parable. No one tears a piece from a garment, a new garment, and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And Noah puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old uh, is good. Now, uh, the context of what we're looking at would have made more sense had we been able to finish uh, chapter 5 last week. So if you look back to chapter 5, verse uh, 20, starting in verse 27, but ultimately down to verse 29 and 30 there, you see that Levi, uh, Matthew, we know him by as well, uh, is a new convert, new believer, decides to have a party and invites all of his tax collector friends and other quote-unquote sinners to this particular party. And the Pharisees observe this. They see this, and they're very offended with Jesus, that he would have the nerve. What kind of a religious guy are you that you would eat and dine with tax collectors and sinners? And so Jesus addresses them. It's those who are sick that need a physician, not those who are well, and, and so on. And he begins to, there starts to be a sort of animosity between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees really don't like who Jesus is and the direction he is taking things. Uh, and that's the context of what we're looking at in verse 33. So it says, when it says, and they said, we're referring to those Pharisees. And again, the Pharisees were, uh, they were the Jewish religious leaders. They were different sects of Jews. But these were those that were very strict to the word uh, and, and also to their traditions and making sure that everybody did things the way that they did things and the way they determined that it was supposed to be. And Jesus was outside of that box. And it bothered them. Who's this guy? What right do you have? What authority do you have to come in here and start changing things? Uh, but, as you know, Jesus uh, did. <laughs> so, it says, that he, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours are eating and drinking. The right way... To serve God and honor God is to do it our way. And that's by fasting and praying. And you're hanging out with all these tax collectors and everyone's rejoicing and having a wonderful time because they're being forgiven of their sins. And God is touching their lives there. But I, I don't want to hear it. You've got to do it our particular way. So Jesus, notice what he says. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with him? Now he's the bridegroom. Um, and then he goes on. Notice he says, look, the day's going to come when the bridegroom will be taken away. And then you can fast in those days. And I think that's a clear reference to the crucifixion. Uh, the days are going to come when Christ is going to be rejected and take it away. And there will be great mourning uh, throughout not only the city of Jerusalem, uh, but the entire nation. So that day will come. And don't worry, they're going to fast, they're going to pray in those days. 
But then he goes on and he, he says, here's a parable for you guys. Now remember, Jesus is still in the process of calling disciples. We're about a year into ministry. People have been following. You're going to see a little bit later in chapter 6 that he, uh, there he'll name the 12 apostles. Um, but people are still checking him out, figuring things out. And every time Jesus comes to a situation where there's a great multitude of people that seem to be interested, it's in those instances where Jesus will really hit them. And I'll say, this is what it's going to mean to follow me. Are you in or are you out? And many will go away. Like, I don't want to be a part of that. But then there's that crowd that, that will remain there. So Jesus is in, still in the process of teaching them what it's going to mean for them to be a disciple. You say you want to be my follower. Let me explain to you what that means before you sign up. And this first thing that I think he's going to teach him here, at least tonight, first thing, is this concept of flexibility. If you want to be a follower of mine, and was Jesus extending an invitation to the Pharisees to be a follower of his? Sure he was. Just as he did to a tax collector, just as he did to the woman caught in adultery, just as he does to the sinner, that is, the Pharisee. He extends that invitation to them. And so here he is saying to them, if you want to be my follower, and I'm sure most of them, I want to be your follower, but there was probably that guy that was sitting there, or a couple of them that were thinking but didn't want to say it out loud. And so he's saying to them, Uh, as I think you'll see this evening, you want to be my follower, then one of the first character traits that's going to be required of you is that you become a learner, that's what a disciple is, but that you become flexible. That the things that you bring to this table may not be the things that remain in your relationship with God, is what he's saying to them. So you have all these rules, you have all these traditions, this is the way you've always done it, this is what everyone has said, this is popular opinion. Well, I'm going to shake that up a little bit. And I'm going to change some things. And are you open to that? And if you say no, you can't make changes, Jesus, well, then you can't be my fault. You can't be a disciple of mine. So notice what he says here. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So imagine, I just went and I bought a nice new suit. I think it was the most formal suit I've ever bought, like a tailor and everything. And the guy did his magic and all these things and he... He ripped me off, too, because he brought me in. He said, well, let's, let's just get a feel for your size. Hey, why don't you put this jacket on? It was the most expensive jacket in the place kind of thing. And I, I like this one. And so he's a salesman. So he got me there. Um, I didn't buy that one. But anyway, he's a salesman. Imagine, though, if I went and I bought this nice suit and I got it all tailored up and it looks really good. It looks perfect on me. And then I bring it home and I cut it up to sew a patch onto my old suit that had a little hole in it or something like that. That wouldn't make any sense, would it? No, you don't think it would make any sense. What are you nuts? You know, you're ruining the good suit. So it wouldn't make any sense. Now here, the context of what we're looking at, the new garment are those things that Jesus is introducing that they're going to have to be flexible with. The old garment is sort of the status quo that the Pharisees had and held. And Jesus is speaking to these guys, and he's speaking to us as well, but he's speaking to these guys, and he's saying to them, look, I'm not just a patch to your religious system. Slight little change here and there, a little bit of new, kind of to spice things up. We've got to throw out the old garment altogether, essentially is what he is saying, and start anew here. All right, heavy words there. Then he goes on in verse 37, and I think here, same idea. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, just as it, you would ruin the suit if you did that. Well, you're going to ruin... Uh, the wine skin as well. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins as it begins to ferment and so on. It will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. 
but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, the wine would shape the wineskins. A disciple has to be willing to be shaped by Jesus. You don't shape him, he shapes you. So you don't come to him and say, all right, Jesus, this is the way it's going to be. I'll give you Sunday mornings. Make sure I'm out of there by 12.15. Let Pastor Greg know i got places to be, you know, kind of thing. And that's the extent of my commitment to you. You know, and everything else stays the same. No, Jesus comes in and he shapes up, shapes, shapes us, I should say. We don't shape him, all right, in the new wine, old wine skins. So the first idea tonight is this idea of flexibility. Are we willing to allow God to change us? even our preconceived ideas of what it means to be a follower of God. Well, remember, these disciples here, this is the first time they're meeting this Jesus. You guys have read about him for years, perhaps. You know, you've been hearing about, we as a people have been hearing about him for 2,000 years. But for these guys, it's all new. They're discovering this Jesus. Now, as we move into chapter 6, again, we still have a problem with the Pharisees. Chapter uh Verse 1 through 5 and then up to verse 11 is another situation involving them. So notice what it says in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing this? What is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God, and he took and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those that were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what they're doing is they're, they're walking along. They come past a, a grain field here. They, they essentially pull off the top little flowery kind of thing to the grain here. They pull that off. They rub it in their hands. They blow away the junk, and then what remains almost became sort of like a little bit of a gum. And they would just pop it in and chew it, and you chew it a little bit, and then you could just swallow it, spit out, whatever. It's not real gum um, kind of thing. Well, in the minds of these fairies, first of all, that's legal to do. Like So, you know, I would think, hey, man, that's somebody's farm. You don't go to their farm and steal ears of corn or something like that. Um, but it was completely legal to do, even according to Jewish law. Deuteronomy chapter 23 specifically says that you could do that. You know, you can't go with a sickle and cut it all down and bring it home, but you could, you know, you go in, rub it in your hands and, and eat it in that regard. So what these Pharisees are saying is not you're stealing, but what they're saying is they were doing this on the Sabbath. And they equated the plucking and the kind of rubbing together to get rid of that stuff you don't want to eat. They equated that to harvesting and threshing, essentially. They equated it to doing work on the Sabbath. And so they said, why do your guys do work on the Sabbath? And so Jesus then says, well, wait a minute. Haven't you heard what David did? David went into the temple. This, the story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. It was when David was on the run. Uh, Paul, Saul was trying to get him and all these sorts of things. And David and his men, they're on the run and they're hungry. And they come to, uh, well, I guess we can look at it. Why don't you turn to 1 Samuel 21? Might as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Make sure I'm telling the truth. Bereans. Huh? We're being Bereans. There you go. Now, there's no temple at this time. Remember, that's not built till after David. But starting in verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, Then they came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to David, trembling, 
And he said, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Himelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. Now that's not true. Uh, he's running from the king. He says, I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? What kind of food do you got here? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, the show bread, um, in the tabernacle. We have that. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered, truly women have been kept uh, from us, as always when I go on an expedition, the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. And then the story goes on from there. So David now uh, comes to this place and said, do you have any food? And so well, we only have the show bread, which is for the priest. Now that show bread was replaced every day, the end of a day or whatever, they'd bring it in or beginning of the day. Uh, they'd bring in a replacement loaf of bread and then the priest would take that. But that bread was given to David. All right. So the point is there was an exception that was made in, in a situation where it was needed. And here we have uh, that Jesus does work, or his disciples, they do work out of necessity, even if it's on the Sabbath. Do you remember the story that is found in Luke chapter 14? If you want, you can turn there. In Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 1, it says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Do work on the Sabbath. But they remained silent. And he took them, and he took him, I should say, and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you have a having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. And so the, inc the incident or the idea is that, look, if there is an opportunity and a need, a necessity to do good, then do it. Whether it's Sabbath day or not, Jesus is establishing here or saying here. I like the question that he asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? There's no answer on their part. And we see that when there was sort of an issue of a hardness of heart on the part of the Pharisees, they just wouldn't answer. They knew the right answer, but they wouldn't answer and I, I think here what you're seeing is they would say, yeah, it's lawful in certain circumstances, but our rules, our rules say don't do it. So stop doing it. Come back tomorrow if you want to heal the guy. And Jesus says, no, we're going to heal him right now. And they do. You see, so for them, there was an unwillingness for the Pharisees, an unwillingness to be flexible with their thinking, with their rules, with their traditions. And that kept them from being a disciple. Isn't that interesting, I think? So could work be done? Yes. Uh, in the um, in the case of a necessity. Now, in back in Luke chapter six, as you move on to verse six, we have the example of uh, work being done on a Sabbath, but this time not out of necessity. This time out of mercy. So let's take a look at it. It says, "Now on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see." whether he would heal on the Sabbath. No, they're not here to learn. They're not here to have God touch their heart. They're here to catch people. All right? And unfortunately, they're going to miss what God wants to do in their life. 
so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, remember this question, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to plot how you're going to kill me? Which is what they were doing. Or to destroy life? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury, and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So again, the story, uh, we just read it, I know, but here, Jesus takes center stage. They know this guy is here with the withered hand. Did this fella come in on his own? Did they put him there to see what Jesus would do and to get him in trouble? Uh, or does he just happen to be there and they take notice of it? I guarantee he's going to try and heal this guy. If he does, I'm going to give him one. You know, he said he's got such nerve here. And so they're watching and they're watching and watching. Now, Jesus, again, in verse 8, it says he knew their thoughts. And so he says to the man, now, Jesus could have gave the guy a look and said, hey, see me outside afterwards. And privately went over and healed the guy, right? But Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees just as much as he's dealing with this guy. So he calls the guy front and center and he puts him there. And then I like how it says, Jesus uh, says to them, these people, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath? Notice verse 10, after looking around at them. So he asks the question, and then he allows his eyes to just sort of scan the room. And I, I suspect, they, he knows, they know the answer. Yes, you can do that, but we don't do that. And I suspect as Jesus looks at each of them, their eyes go down. Because they, they can't say no or yes or whatever. Who knows exactly, but... Nonetheless, after looking around at them, nobody says anything. So he says, you know what? Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And then look at verse 11. And they're filled with fury. What do you think the man is feeling? The guy is out of his mind, ecstatic. He's delighted. He's been healed. He had this withered hand and all of the difficulties that that brought with him. And now he's been healed. But the condition of their heart is that it drives them to fury uh, and rage and ultimately deciding, how can we get rid of this guy? And here, I'm sure, somebody is beginning, well, let's kill him. Let's have him killed. Craig, do you think that the Pharisees, have they ever seen healing before? Probably not commonly. I mean, yeah, this is pretty remarkable. It's amazing to me that their hearts were so hardened that they couldn't just like... Yeah. Special, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we don't we don't do that here you know but it it is it's a good lesson though for us how a hard heart the impact that it can have on what god's trying to do in our lives you know and so that the importance of continually guarding our hearts and making sure that they're right before the lord certainly because sin can harden our hearts bitterness can harden you know you think of all the things that can have the effect of hardening our hearts and a lot of times, well, it's just bitterness, you know, and I'll, I'll give it up eventually, but I'm holding on to it now. Well, the problem is we can harden our hearts so much that we can't come back, so to speak, from it, you know, unless God does a really miraculous thing. So, all right, you ready to move on here? The 12 apostles. Verse 12 says, And in, the, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them 
twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John, they're also brothers of each other, Philip and Bartholomew, I think some of your versions might say Nathaniel, yeah. um, and Matthew, that's Levi, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Jesus picks these 12 guys in particular. Uh, Judas Iscariot, a surprise to him, the direction he went? No, he knew. He knew that Judas was going to be the traitor and all this, but nonetheless, he was there uh, in the midst. Did Jesus treat Judas poorly? Probably not. You know, he taught him just as well as he taught the others and loved them. him. Um, Judas went astray. Um, a couple of things I notice about this is that Jesus went all, out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. I've never done that. Have you guys ever gone to a mountain and prayed? No, I mean, have you ever prayed all night? Uh, probably not. Um, so that's pretty remarkable, one. The second thing is, when I approach big major decisions, do I pray at all about it? You know, and here's Jesus about to approach this pretty significant decision here, uh, obviously, naming these 12 apostles here. Uh, and rather than being um, impulsive and just sort of jumping into things, there's an evening of prayer spent. Now, is Jesus praying for wisdom and direction and guidance and, oh, Lord, help me pick the right ones? I don't think so. Um, but there is sort of a, a lesson for us in this. Of Remember in James it talks about, you know, who are you? You talk about you're going to do this and this and go to this city and that city and spend this money and that money, but you should say if the Lord wills. You know, so there's an idea of seeking the Lord before jumping into all these things here. And here you have an example of the Lord jumping into this. Um, you know, so just the value of prayer. Luke spends a lot of time trying to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus was a man of prayer. Uh, and that as part of his humanity, now he's fully God, fully man, but as part of his humanity, uh, the desperate need uh, of him to be in prayer. It's a lesson for us that we, if he needed to pray, we certainly need to pray. But I brought up this question, is Jesus praying for wisdom? Is he praying for direction? I don't know who to pick God. I don't want to make the wrong choice. I don't think so. I think this is more an evening of prayer for these guys, dedicated to them. You know, in which he's saying, Father, you know that Simon, you know, you know he's going to put his foot in his mouth a lot and he's going to struggle with things. But Lord, you know also he's going to confess that I am the Christ, the Son of God. You know that he's going to become the rock, that the church, that that uh, declaration that he's going to make is going to become that rock that the church is built upon. And I think he's just spending the night praying for these guys to be strengthened and enabled for the task that is ahead of them here. So he prays. And then he goes out and he starts picking. Now Jesus is going to change the world. The world is different because Jesus walked it 215 years ago or whatever uh, the actual time is. Jesus, and you've heard it said, he didn't write books, he didn't travel really outside of Jerusalem, I mean outside of, uh, of Israel and all these sorts of things other than when he was a boy. You know, he didn't go on speaking tours all around uh, and this and for the most part, as far as percentages of the world's population, very few people in his day even knew who he was. You know, it didn't spread to the whole world while he was out walking the earth. He only taught for 
three-some years or so where people had interaction with him. So if here's a guy that's going to change the world, and if you wanted to change the world, who would you recruit to your team to do that? Not those guys. Probably not these guys. You'd go after maybe the smartest people that are out there or the most connected people that are out there or the most influential people uh, that are there. You wouldn't go after fishermen or tax collectors or zealots. You know what a zealot is? A zealot was, were those who thought it would be a good idea to kill the Romans so that the Jews could rise up and take, take over. And one of these guys here, you can see down the bottom, Simon, who was called the zealot. They said zealots used to keep a knife underneath sort of, they, they had a number of different cloaks that they would wear, and underneath one of those cloaks they'd keep a knife ready just in case they ran into a Roman and they had the option that like, nobody will know and they could kill him. So they have that guy. Then they got a tax collector on the team who were sellouts uh, of the Jewish people to the Romans, which I'm sure, I, I wonder how many times Simon looked over at him like, you know, like one of these. I could take him out right now and no one would know. You know, so you think of all these people that Jesus brought. They were ordinary men, but God did extraordinary things through them. And you remember a little bit later on in the book of Acts, I think it's found in Acts chapter 4, where you have Peter and John, they're arrested and all this sort of stuff. Then they go out and they start preaching again. And what set of them? Anybody remember? It said who? Not that one. Not that they were drunk in there. It says, you know what? They took note that these these guys had been with Jesus. That having had been with Jesus, they were changed by that. They were different as a result of that. And God changed the world by through these really through these eleven men and then others that would come as a result of their ministries and so on. So, uh, I find it interesting. That's all. God can use, and I think God wants to use, ordinary people. We don't have to be the most educated or trained. We don't have to go to this school or that school and all this. We just simply have to be people that are submitted to the Lordship of Christ, that are filled with the Spirit, which means we're submitted to what the Spirit is leading us to do. We're yielded. And then be obedient to what God wants us to do. And that includes opening up our mouth. And God uses people like that. And so let's be that people. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, now let's move on to verse 17. Now 17 through the end of the chapter is all one long uh, encounter. Most of our Bibles have it, has it broken up into sections here. But this goes all the way down here. And one of the things you'll notice, look at just real quickly verse 20. See, about halfway through it says, And blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, you, you should be satisfied. And so on. Very similar words to what we hear in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We call that the Sermon on the Mount. But take notice, if you will, here in verse 17, and it says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. Some of your versions will say, And he stood on a plain, or he was in the plain, area there. So I don't think this is the same sermon as Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 or at least not the same scenario or scene. It may be the same message overall. You know, Jesus reused the sermon, if you will. And so Jesus probably taught the things we read in Matthew 5, the things we read here in Luke chapter 6, many different times to many different groups of people. But there are some differences in what we're, not contradictions, just differences in what Jesus is sharing in Luke chapter 6 from what he shares in Matthew chapter 5 and 7. 
So you know how Matthew 5, it says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, and so on and so forth. It goes from there. Here it says, blessed are the poor. And typically what we do is, well, Jesus meant in spirit, just didn't say it here. But I don't think so. I think he's talking about a different thing, same word, poor, but he's speaking of something different. So we'll look at that as we come to it. But anyway, I think this is a different scenario. So rather than being the Sermon on the Mount, we could call this the Sermon on the Plain. Not the airplane, the plain, the, the flat ground. It says this, Now he came down with them, he stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people, from all Judea and Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So remember, they're still up in the north, the Galilee region. And it says, These people who came to hear him, and to be healed of those diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits or demons, they were cured. And the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So the great multitudes, or, or great multitudes are coming, they're gathering. And just based on what you read in verses 18 and 19, you see what seems to be drawing this crowd, uh, which is larger than typical, are the goodies, quote-unquote, that Jesus has to offer. People are being healed. People are being delivered from demons. All these things. So the crowds are really starting to swell in number. And as I said when we began, what does Jesus do at that time? Rather than saying, great, go get more friends. I'll just keep doing these sorts of things so lots of people will come. What Jesus will do is he'll challenge them at that time. You really want to be my follower? This is what it means to follow me. And he'll give them a hard message and Many will be like, okay, let's pack up. It's time to go. So you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, day later, Jesus gives them a hard message about uh, him being the bread of life and eat my, bre- my body and, and so on. And they're like, what is this guy? And, the, and many of them left and so on. So here you have that scenario again. As you move into verse 20, it says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Now remember, there's a crowd there, but he speaks to his disciples, those that are closer and listening And he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers also did to the prophets. So these also could be called Beatitudes. I think some of your versions will probably have that listed as the title there. Uh, an easy way to remember a Beatitude, it's, it's an attitude you should be having. You know? So it's a Beatitude. Uh, and Jesus here, I think the key to these things, you know, you look at it and you say, all right, well, I guess I better quit my job so I could be poor, so I could have the kingdom of God. Uh, I guess I better not. I better skip that meal so I could be hungry, you know, or so on. We can look at it that way, but notice, if you will, in verse twenty-two, about halfway through, where it says, "On account of the Son of Man." I think that's the key to understanding these four or five things that are listed here. The idea of being poor in and of itself doesn't bring great blessing. The idea of being hungry uh, doesn't bring, won't be satisfaction just because you're hungry. But the idea is that these things are happening on account of your relationship with Christ on your, uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, what does it mean to be poor? 
Does it mean to be without money? I think so. Uh, certainly, I mean, it's an easy, quick definition, certainly. That, so, uh, but the idea, when a person is impoverished, there's a constant need. Now, I work with a lot of college students, and one thing I've come to discover is they have no money. There's a constant need. So I'm like, hey, why don't we meet for a cup of coffee? And I see them in their mind thinking, do I have enough for coffee? You know? I'm like, come on, it's $1.89. Like, you have enough, you know, I'll, I'll spring for you, or whatever. But you can see there's that constant calculation, if you will, that is going on, where they're thinking it through and they're making that determination. And a person that is in a place of uh, poverty or they're impoverished, there's a constant dependence for provision. God, please provide. God, we need your help. Now, when we get a little more comfortable and financially things are going pretty well for us, that dependence sort of goes away a little bit, doesn't it? And we know that there's something in the cupboard, you know, and, and, uh, and all that. When my wife goes away for like a weekend or something, then like I become a little more dependent on the Lord. Uh, because, you know, I know there's stuff in the house, but not good stuff, you know what I mean, that she gets, and I just got to scrounge stuff up here. Um, but Jesus is saying, hey, blessed are you when you choose to go without for the kingdom of God. When you choose, if you will, to be poor. Now, what does that mean, choose to be poor? The idea is, you know what? I don't need all this stuff for myself. Compare it to this one. Look over to verse 24. You see how it says, but woe to you, you who are rich. So you have on one side you who are poor, the other side you who are rich. If you look at verse uh, 21, blessed are you who are hungry now. Verse 25, woe to you who are full now. You see how they're comparing with one another? Again in 21, blessed are you who weep now, compared to 25, and woe to you who laugh now. And then the last one, when people exclude you, hate you, and so on. Verse 26 says, when all people speak well of you. So if you're voluntarily going without for the sake of the kingdom of God, there's a blessing in that. God sees that and he honors that. And you know what? You may not have a rich, fancy home here or a fancy car here necessarily because you chose to give away uh, some of your resources on behalf of others. Well, God sees that and he'll bless you. Maybe not here on this earth, but in the kingdom of God, don't doubt, he will. And similarly, you choose to go hungry. Compare that, if you will, to... Verse 25, you who are full now, the idea there is gluttonously, that's a word, I'm not even sure, full, far beyond what you need. You've been there, right? You go to a meal and you eat so much and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't have another bite. And your stomach hurts. Literally, it hurts. It's like, I don't know about you, but it's like a board. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't fit anything else. And then what happens? The dessert lady comes around. Absolutely. You know, bring it on by. There's plenty of room there. But the idea of, in a way that is gluttonous and extravagant and going over the top uh, in your life there, with no thought for another, right? But those who are willing to, you know what, you can have it, and they're willing to give, and even from the perspective of food, go hungry, the Lord will bless that person. He goes on, he talks about weeping. What causes your heart to be broken? Do the things of God. That's what I think he's referring to here. Weeping over man's broken state. And that this world in which we live. But compare that to verse 25. 
He says, woe to you who laugh now. And the idea that they're being just amused. You know what the word amusement means? Amuse means to think, right? Not think. And amused, not to think. You know, just to be amused to such a place where you're oblivious to the things of God and the things that break the heart of God. So whereas our hearts should be broken and we should be weeping over those that are lost and dying and even weeping over our very own sin, instead, we don't even think about it. We're oblivious to it. And so he makes that comparison. And then the last one there, uh, when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you, compare that to verse 26, when all people speak well of you. (coughs) The uh, point of verse 26 is comfortable, uh, well-received. The gospel is offensive. Would everybody agree with that? Yeah, the gospel is offensive. Um, there are some that don't want to offend. Now, let me make sure we say this. We're not to be offensive. We're not to call people names. We're not to you know pick on people and oh, great. you feel like a louse? Good. You know, and I get out of here kind of thing. You know, so it's not our personal mission to make people feel like dirt, but the gospel is offensive. If the message that we're sharing with others doesn't prick people and doesn't cause some form of an offense there, then we're probably not really preaching the real gospel, right? And so how is it that these folks here, uh, all people will speak well of them, they'll be well-received here, they'll be, uh, what's the next phrase, uh, comfortable, and so on. The gospel should offend. And so we need to be careful that we're not tailing our message so no one dislikes us and no one hates us. That's hard to do, isn't it? Sure it is. You know, we record our sermons, they go online, some people put their sermons on the radio and stuff like that. You know, up in California, they declared it, excuse me, up in Canada, uh, a law was passed that uh, a preacher could not speak to the issue of homosexuality in a publicly recorded Bible study. And if that went over the airwaves, that that person was uh, promoting hate speech. You know, well, the scripture teaches and speaks on those issues here. So what do you do? You're going verse by verse through the scripture. Do you just ignore it suddenly? Or can you please turn the tape off at this particular time here? What do you not teach? Well, a lot of folks in the United States and, and other places around the world, they won't even touch the issue anymore because they know that it's offensive and they don't want to offend anybody here. But the word of God, I've been offended a lot by the word of God. My flesh doesn't like to be told that what it is doing is wrong. And then God comes along eventually and he begins to deal with that and and eventually brings me to the point where I say, you know what, I'd rather be right with you than right with my flesh. All right, Lord, I'll die to that. And so on. All right, so so that's that idea here. Remember, Jesus is calling disciples. Thousands of people have gathered to be healed and Jesus has essentially just said to them, Look, you want to know what the ideal disciple of mine is? The ideal disciple is a sacrificial, simple person. Lives simply, not like simple in the sense of uh, not intelligent. A sacrificial person who lives simply, soberly, and by soberly we mean aware, paying attention, Lord, this is not my home, and so on, and then is ultimately enduring. Through the difficulties, through the challenges, through the persecution, is enduring. Now, what's the opposite of that? Well, the opposite of sacrificial, among other words, hoarding. 
everything for myself, building my little kingdom um, so that I could be comfortable. It has the idea of extravagance compared to simple. And uh, again, building up everything for my little kingdom. Opposite of sober might be this idea of oblivious to reality. And then finally, uh, rather than enduring, there's just a comfortable, accepted lifestyle. You're everybody's pal, uh, if you will. Well, that's a challenging thing. And he leaves that there with these would-be followers. What are you going to do with that? And now they have to decide. Now, he's still preaching this sermon. So notice verse 27. He says, But I say to you who hear, remember in a lot of places it says, He who has an ear to hear. So they all heard what he said, but did they really listen to what he said? He says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. I like that. Notice the next one. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. What? Not offering the other. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, you may do what? I have a hard time loving my family and my friends. And now you want me to do all these things? Forget it. I'm not interested. Okay, I understand. Thank you for coming by. You know, Jesus said, oh, well, wait a minute. Let me change it then. Let me make it a little easier so that you'll stay. And Jesus said, this is what it means to be my follower. If you want to be my follower, this is what it's going to look like. You are being called to love your enemies. The word there, love, is, is the form of the word agape. You probably heard that there are different forms of the word love. This is the word agape. Agape is what we call a God love. Because phileo love, a brotherly love, I love you, you love me, I get something back. Um, eros love, that's more of a romantic type of love, that sort of thing. But agape love is a, a giving love. It's I give and I give and I give. My hand never comes out. And so what are you going to give me? That's the love that God has for us. He gave us his one and only son. God so agape the world. He loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. He doesn't get anything back in, in return for that. And so he's saying, I'm calling you to agape your enemies. They hit you on the cheek, turn your other one. They ask for this, give them that. And so are they take this, I should say, give them that. They curse you, bless them. And so on. This is for real, man. This is a supernatural kind of love. Now, yes, sir. Hmm, I don't know. We could find it. Do you do Blue Letter Bible? Yeah. Check that. That'll be good. He's on it right now. Oh, he's on it right now. There you go. All right. Um, now, here's the important thing. I think we hear this as followers of Christ. We're here gathering for a Bible study. We want to know what God has to say to us and so on. And we think, you know what? I got to love more. I really do. I got to love more. I got to be. I got to be more loving. That's it. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna be more loving. You know, this Lent or something like that. And we we come up with a plan to love more. Here, here's an important thing. This love doesn't come from you, but it comes from God living through you. All right. So if you want to do something to fulfill this a little bit better, then what you should do is yield more and say, "All right, God, I give up more of myself so that you can love this way." me. So I don't want you to walk out of here thinking, I've got to work a little bit harder on that love thing. All right? It doesn't work that way. We don't produce fruit, right? Fruit produces naturally as we are tapped into the vine, the source. So another place you can go is John chapter 15. So you don't see trees working really hard so that the produce will suddenly 
you know, pop out of the branches there or the buds there. It just simply, when it's tapped in, the fruit is produced, nat- produced naturally. Okay? So it continues. We'll come back to that, okay? Uh, oh, go ahead. You want to share it now, enemies? Okay, I'll share it now. Uh, ekthos is the word. Well, I remembered my Greek. How about that? Uh, it is from a from the primary ekthos to hate, hateful, passively odious, or actively hostile. Is that sort of what you're looking for, or do you want to know if does it translate to something in English? Like I, I wasn't sure of your question. Oh, that's different. Okay, <laughs> sorry about that. So, what could we look at as our enemies today? And did he mean something different than the, the context of this? A mother-in-law, maybe. <laughs> um, I will scratch that from wow. the tape. All right. Um, I like my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law is wonderful. I like mine too. Yeah, so. She rocks. How about the world's values? Some of that. going in an opposite direction perhaps and just the natural animosity that forms in those cases well said actually all right so the question is and i think this is a good almost like a devotional question so you're having your quiet time or something and you come across a phrase like this love your enemies uh, is to to go back to the lord and say all right lord who are my enemies you know who are those people that my natural inclination is to strike back at or to snatch out of their hands what they just took from me or to hate as opposed to love um Would you, okay, not people's names, I hope. Okay, good. I just think back to September 11th and everything that went on there. And myself, I guess I had a problem with Muslims. Okay. Example. It is hard not to get angry reading those stories about persecution. 
Somebody pointed out, I'll be right with you. Somebody pointed out, um, you guys remember Todd Beamer, that name? He was one of the fellows that was on the plane that, um, Flight 93, that, yeah, that the passengers sort of took the plane back mid-flight. Uh, and um, we know that he called, he tried to call home and he got an operator. And so in the conversation with the operator, you know, he said, can you call my wife and tell her, you know, this and that. And... Um, he said, would, would you pray with me? And they prayed the Lord's Prayer together. Um, well, somebody pointed out, you know, the Lord's Prayer is, I forget it now from my Catholic days, but uh, the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy kingdom come. Um, forgive us our sin, trespass, we forgive those who trespass against us. Something like that. It's up there, I know it. Um, and that's the prayer they prayed. Forgive us those who trespass against us including these five, four guys that have try, are trying to kill us right now here or will be killing us. Um, those guys prayed to their God asking for strength to accomplish this deed, you know, and to kill. So two very opposite prayers there, you know. Um, but even in that, and, and who knows if in Todd's mind he even considered that he was praying for them to be forgiven, almost like, Jesus, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Who knows here? But that is a that's a real example. I'm never really I'm not really faced with those circumstances uh, at this point in my life here. Uh, but I I'm I'm with you as to what you're saying. There's a lot of people who are working. Yeah. And we have this this one old guy. He reminded me of my grandfather. Looked like, him. but he's a Muslim, and he was telling me, "Oh, you got to go to." Uh, the thing is, okay. Yeah. Wow. Trevor, what did you want to add, my friend?
moments mm. to forgive yeah. and to treat with grace. A person don't need to be forgiven, but he needs grace. And I believe that's where the Holy Spirit comes in and just we're working our life amazingly. And maybe before all of that happened, you said, I would never do that. You know, I would never forgive. Mm. That's a great thing. Do you remember what, what they, those people actually went and his daughters were good and they, they ministered to his wife mm. and his family. And that doesn't make people stop and take any of this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When we don't forget, when we hold a grudge against somebody and we don't forget, we're not really hurting that person yeah. holding a grudge against. We're hurting ourselves. You're right. And You're right. All right. Well, that's a good discussion, actually, here. Let's uh, continue. Verse 30 says, Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? So, ultimately here, Jesus is just turning the tables on all these things. It's going to be very different to follow me. He says, even sinners lend to sinners to get the same back, back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and you'll re- your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the un- for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, I think there's a key phrase there. We're going to end on this. In verse 35, where it says, and you will be sons of the Most High, it's very important that we don't look at that and say, for me to be a child of God, that happens because I do these things that Jesus just listed there. But really, the idea is that children of God do these things. You know what I mean? That, that's the uniform that we put on. And that we love our enemies and, and all those other things that are mentioned there. That's what it means uh, to be a child of God. So, again, brand new information to these disciples. All right? They didn't have this book to read many, many times like we, we do. This is new information to them where they're being challenged of what it's going to mean to be a follower of Christ. And Jesus is requiring, among other things, flexibility. I'm going to change your established patterns and ideas of what it's going to mean to follow God. Uh, and it's going to make you uncomfortable at times. Maybe even who we picked to be the apostles made some people uncomfortable there. All right, but he gives them these things here to consider. So we are going to stop there because there's quite a bit more, and uh, we're not going to have time to get through it here. But we'll pick up in verse 37. Uh, An interesting passage you hear quoted a lot. Judge not lest you be judged, brother. You hear that a lot, which means basically we better just keep our mouth shut and let everybody do what they want to do. We'll talk about what it means the next time we come together.